Welcome to the Lifeway Student Ministry Podcast. I'm Ben Trueblood here with John Paul Basham. Yo. And special guest, the one and only Eric Reed. You said special. I don't I would like to know in what way you mean special. <laughs> but we probably shouldn't Spe- get into that. Yeah, special <laughs> in the best way. So uh if you are new to the podcast, then we would love for you to leave a rating and review. Let us know what you think. We do this for you, the student ministry leader. So help us get better. Uh, leave the words for the review and the stars for the rating. It also helps other people find the podcast as they search for student ministry content. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Eric Reed is with us today, and uh, Eric's had a long relationship with LifeWay students. Yeah. How, how many years have you been doing Fuge? Uh, almost 10 years. Okay. So, yeah. he So, Eric predates me. That's a lot of in camp. In relationship I'm to my OG to the camp world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's so funny camp. to say that, but yeah. <laughs> camp pastor. And you usually do several weeks of summer. I do. And, man, I can tell you from just what we hear back and what we hear from student pastors, uh, one of the most requested and sought after people. And we even have people, like, contact us and, like, hey we want Eric to come do our disciple now or something. Do you, can you give us his contact information? So we have those from time to time as yeah. well. So I know you get to get out and, and do that kind of stuff. Also pastors journey church. That's here in the Nashville area. Uh, a multi-campus church husband, father, father all of three. that good stuff. How long uh, now you are the planting yeah. founding pastor of the journey right that's right yeah well so we'll be 14 years old in january okay man 14 years does it feel like it's flown by some days so (laughs) so it's so weird because you could say on some days i feel like it's been forever because i would say there's been life cycles in our church where it's like we i look back and i go man that doesn't even feel like we're the same church as we were at that season or at that yeah. time. But at the same time, I can look back and remember it like it was yesterday, you know? So it's like there's moments where it feels like that was ages ago. And then there's moments where it's like that was that long ago. Yeah. You know, I mean, that. I mean, you know, I'm surprised by, you know, we've been in this building for 11 years. It doesn't feel that long. You know, mm. things like that happen. So, man, that's cool. I, I'm i excited about this episode. Um, and to even say this phrase, like in my brain, Oh, like sometimes when you preach, your brain moves faster than your words. And so you're a phrase ahead. And that happened just now because I was like, I'm excited about today's episode <laughs> because we're going to be talking about suffering. Woo-hoo! And it even, Let's <laughs> jump in. <laughs> that even sounds like really strange. But watching your story on we live on uh, different sides of Nashville. I don't go to your church, so I'm not I don't have the front row seat. Yeah. But kind of there towards the middle back of the journey that you guys have been on as a family has kind of uniquely put you in this place to talk about suffering and hope. Yeah. And uh and you you also have a podcast called Hopeful Sufferers. That's right. So, uh, I would encourage you guys to check out that podcast that uh that Eric and one of his staff guys named Brett uh do together um that explore that topic. And That's right. it, I like podcasts where the the title is very descriptive of what the topic is. That's right. When we try to dive into all aspects of what that looks like and what that means. Yeah. So I I think the best way for us to to launch in is just to give you the floor and kind of tell the story and, and catch us up on how God has specifically put man, I'm going to talk about how to be hopeful in the midst of suffering. And that's actually going to be one of the things that I see God doing in my life personally as I lead. And so here's the floor and catch us up on the story of how you got there. Yeah. So I have have three children. I have Caleb, who's 15. I have Kaylee, who just turned 10. And I have Kyra, who's about to turn six. So they're spread out. Uh, Oldest is is my son and the youngest two are my daughters. Um, But when we first got married and found out we were pregnant, uh, we were 23 years old. I had just been in ministry a year. You know, Mm -hmm. I was very new to ministry. I had truly been following the Lord, really diving in only for the last couple of years. Just had a hunger for Jesus, just wanted others to see and to know and to understand what I had come to see, know and understand. Right. I just wanted to give it away. Like, do you believe this? This is what the Bible says, you know, and um, I grew up all around it, but it never clicked like that for me. And uh, so I was just eager to share. And so I was in the midst of being in ministry. We found out we were having our first child. We were so excited. We were pumped. And 
uh, at one of our doctor's visits, we were told there's something going on. There's a mass in the stomach. We don't know what it is. And we're going to refer you to a specialist. And so we were just kind of hanging for weeks, waiting for an appointment to know more. So it was just this vague, it could be cancer. It could be something else. We don't know what this is. Hmm. So we went to that specialist. The specialist told us that uh, we had um, a bad kidney. So my son's kidneys were, uh, one of them was filling up with cyst and with fluid, and it looked like the other kidney was good. And so they thought, let's just keep him in there as long as we can. And when he's born, we'll deal with the kidney issue. So he ends up being born early. Uh, the complications he was having with the kidney was causing complication with my wife's pregnancy. It tricked mm. her body into labor. He's born 10 weeks premature, so he's born wow. at 30 weeks. Yeah. And um, immediately what they did is they put a, a drain in to basically drain these cysts off this kidney, and they started draining fluid off, and they left it in there because they it was going to just keep draining until they could get him big enough to get the kidney out. Okay. So the goal was keep him in here, get him bigger because he's a preemie, he's 2 pounds, 12 ounces, and when he gets big enough, we'll go in and have surgery, take the kidney out. Well... About two months into it, he's getting sick all the time. This catheter, this drain in his side is getting infected. Mm. So they were like, the risk reward here of leaving this catheter in versus having the surgery, we need to just go ahead and have surgery because we're pushing it with him getting toxic, getting sick. And so they had surgery two months in. Um, It looked like everything went well. We were told, hey, get the bad kidney out, go home. And this is all history. Like, he'll grow up with one kidney. It'll never be an issue in his life. Yeah. Never to worry about it. So that afternoon, that evening, he still hasn't peed yet. And we're kind of like, okay, you know, and should be happening soon. And he's kind of swelling up with fluid because they're pumping him with, you know, um, you know, with bags of fluid to keep him hydrated and trying yeah. to actually kickstart right. the process. And the next morning, there's still nothing. No, no urine. He, his blood pressure skyrocketing. He's almost double his body weight in, in fluid. And they know something's off, something's wrong. And to make a long story short, um, in the podcast, I go into the details step by step of how we figured this out and what was going on and all those pieces. But the long story uh, made short of it is they had accidentally taken out his good kidney with his bad kidney. So wow. we were just thrown into accidentally. They a- didn't know accidentally. Now he he had he had something that was called a horseshoe kidney. So that bad kidney that they had saw in the ultrasound was actually connected by tissue to his good kidney. Okay, and it was wow. folded in half. They were folded with each other. Wow. So when they saw in the ultrasound the bad kidney, that's all they saw was yeah. the bad kidney. So they took both out and. I didn't really, you know, I was young. I didn't know they had taken both out. At first, they didn't know they'd taken out. Then when they started realizing something was wrong, they went back and looked at the specimen, and that's when they found that both kidneys were a part of the the specimen. Wow. So as you can imagine, I mean, that just threw our world upside down. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was so naive. And you're 23, 24 years old. Yeah, I don't even, I mean, if I'm being really honest, like, I don't even know what the kidneys do at that, you know, at that age. I'm just like, I know you pee with kidneys, but like. Is there an alternative way to pee? You know, it's like, <laughs> right. yeah, I like, I just, I just don't know. And my wife's like, he's not going to live. He's mm-hmm. not going to make it. And I, and that's when it, the gravity hit me like, oh my goodness, I'm going to lose my son. Mm. And so the doctors, you know, gave us options for things we could do. Ultimately, they said he would need a kidney transplant. And yet he was too small for a kidney transplant. You have to transplant adult kidneys to babies. Okay. So he was way too small for an adult kidney. So the whole... The whole plan was we've got to do something to help him until he can get a transplant. And so dialysis uh, was going to be attempted. First time um, in, in, in Nashville that a child his size had ever attempted dialysis like this. Wow. So it was it was a roller coaster. But um, from the, that time, from two months old to almost two years old, he was on dialysis and then ended up receiving my wife's kidney. And so he got his kidney transplant and, um, you know, super thankful for that. But it was during that it was during that time when his kidneys were removed, and really life and death was on the line for about two years, multiple times. Hmm. That was the first time ever that I had really been confronted with what do I believe about suffering and pain? Hmm. And I, I would love to say, you know, while I was in ministry, so I was completely equipped for this, but it was like, I actually didn't have a theology of suffering at all. If anything, I was very naive to think, well, you know, I'm a Christian, so it's like God's got me. Yeah. You know, I'm good. You know, yeah. a, that doesn't happen to people like us. 
And uh, I, I don't know if I would have ever said it that way, but I think it was kind of an underlying assumption that, you know, these types of things won't happen. God will protect us from that. And my whole life had been marked by, you know, just really ease. Like my parents loved each other. They were married, never divorced. I didn't grow up rich, but I got to do things I wanted to do and played sports. And I mean, I had a good life. I didn't, I didn't get all the cool clothes all my friends would often wear, but you know, I, I, I besides would, that, besides that, good. you know, we, I had what I wanted, you know? So I, I didn't know pain. I didn't know any, I'd never faced really any affliction. I hadn't lost a lot of people I loved. And so all of a sudden I'm confronted with this and questions like, where's God in this? And why is this happening? What, how are we to even make sense of this? And so I sat down. So my, my son had been, um, it had been two days since it had happened. And he was in an incubator still in his room. All these machines are in there. All these, you know, all, it's like the hospital. It's like the TV scene, right? The movie scene where things are beeping yeah. and it's just all this equipment. And there's my son lying there. And uh, my wife's having a hard time, even at this point, going into the room. She can barely even look at him. Mm. It's just so devastating. Yeah. And I remember sitting down with my Bible, and I'm just like, Lord, I need help. I, I need you to—I sh- don't know what to do. I don't even know how to think about this. I don't know how to leave my wife. I don't even know what to say to her. And so I, I went desperate to the Bible. And I, I didn't do, you know, kind of the, you know, the flip through and put your finger on the spot thing. Uh, but I am kind of like just flipping, like reading, like trying to find stories. Like, is there something? And um, again, I, I was young in the faith, really and truly. So I got to the book of Daniel. And for whatever reason, um, I didn't remember really much about the book of Daniel other than Daniel and the Lions Den from Sunday school. Right. I, don't, I didn't remember anything really about the story. And so I started reading in Daniel 1. And I had notepad and pen, and at this point I hadn't written anything down. I'm just kind of scanning stuff. And the very beginning of Daniel 1, you see that the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar storm into Israel, and they take it captive. And immediately that gripped me. I was like, you know, the world of these people were flipped upside down. Mm -hmm. Just Israel and all their history, all the stories of God's giving them victory over stronger, you know, stronger nations, stronger kings— how God rescued them from the hand of Pharaoh, all these things where it's like God came through and God, and I imagine all the young men grew up listening to those stories in Israel. And as they heard about a threat coming from the north, they thought, oh, I mean, that's not going to hit us because we're Israel, we're God's people. Yeah. And Nebuchadnezzar just slammed into Israel and took them. In fact, it says God gave them over to him. And not only did that happen, but these the best and the brightest and the youngest were sent off in exile to Babylon. They were they were literally ripped from their families, given new names, new identities, and sent away. And as I was reading that, I, I was just like, that's what I feel like. I feel like everything I thought I knew has been flipped upside down. Our world has been turned upside down just like theirs. I don't. I feel like I'm in a foreign land right now. I don't know who I am. I don't know where God is. This make, None of this makes sense to me. And so I was gripped from the beginning uh, of reading Daniel, and I kept going. Of course, then you get to the story of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Uh, of course, that's their that's their Babylonian names. Um, and there's a decree in the land, and from that decree, everybody's supposed to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and they don't do it. And people start ratting on them, like, "Hey, you know, the Hebrew boys aren't doing it." And he summons them. And he's like, "Hey, I'm going to let you, you know, have another chance. Bow down when you hear it." And and he says, because what God's going to save you if you don't, what God can rescue you from my hand if you don't do it. And their response to him led to five things I wrote down. I mean, I will never forget these as long as I live. I'd never preached a sermon at this point in my life, ever. Hmm. So I wasn't like writing down sermon material. <laughs> right. This was like bread for life. You yeah. know, like this was like, I need survival. Yeah. And so the first thing that, that stood out is it. Uh, th- they respond to him. They say, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we have no need to... Um, you know, to kind of respond to you in this situation for the God whom we serve is able to save us. And I remember even just right there in that moment, feeling a comfort. I I literally wrote down, our God can save us. This looks very hopeless and it looks very helpless, but God is God and he can save. And you can see all throughout scripture of the God who saves and rescues and redeems and delivers. And and so I, I started finding myself encouraged. I found myself excited. I found myself like, that's right. You know, like I haven't even read the rest of the sentence. I'm just writing down our God can save. 
And I'm dead serious. I didn't even know what was coming after this. Mm-hmm. This is reading like a brand new story for me. Reading I'm it like, fresh. this is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. This is fascinating, you know? And so I'm reading it right now. Our God can save. And then I get to verse 18. But even if he doesn't, but even if he doesn't, uh, I think one translation says, but if not, the God whom we serve, uh, we will not uh, bow down to you. You know, we will not, we will not worship you and bow down to the statue. And I remember before I even wrote down, but even if he doesn't, I just kind of sat there like, mm. oh, I didn't want to read that. I didn't want to read that. I don't want the, but even if he doesn't, because I don't even want the, even if he doesn't to be an option. Right. And it was sobering to hear, to read that and to see that was their theology. Their theology was, yeah, absolutely. Our God can save. He's God. He's Yahweh. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of the universe. Of course he can save. And yet they also had the theology that said, even if he doesn't. In other words, he doesn't owe us anything. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't owe us a saving. He doesn't owe us a deliverance. He's not you know, on the witness stand to give an accounting to us. And even if he doesn't save us from this, we're not going to bow down and worship you. In other words, we're, our allegiance belongs to him, even if he doesn't take us out of this. And I just remember that moment. I wrote it down, and I just sat there, and I, I, I cried. You know, I cried. And I thought, Lord, I, I want to get to a place where, though I believe you can save Caleb, even if you choose to take his life, our lives will belong to you. Mm. And that was not something I could read past very quickly. I, I remember just sitting in that room thinking about, like almost a shoulder slump, not depressed, but just grappling with, I've never heard this before. I've never, that's, that goes against everything I ever thought theologically. You know, I just, my, my baseline belief was just, it was bad, but it was just, you know, if you're a Christian, you know, these things, you're kind of exempt. And it's like, you're not. Yeah. And and God may have reasons to keep you in that furnace and not save you. But if he doesn't save you and doesn't remove you, are you willing to declare you follow him and you follow him alone? Not for what he does for you, but because of who he is. And so I, I it, that rocked me. And I wrote it down. And of course, I wrote thoughts down after I wrote the, the statement. And then I eventually kept reading. And of course, you know that enrages Nebuchadnezzar when he hears that. And so he orders the furnace heated seven times hotter, which, you know, I'm just like hotter than hot. And I was like, what? (laughs) I mean, how hot is hot, right? He's like, okay, seven times hotter. Uh, The guys who are making it hotter die, you know, doing it. And um, and then he he throws them in. And of course, the famous, you know, the famous statement from is like, look, you know, I thought we threw three men in there and I see a fourth. And yeah, that's where the VBS picture comes in. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Insert VBS picture. And uh, and but again, the funny thing is, is I didn't know the story. Mm -hmm. And so when I see the fourth figure, of course, now there's a song, you know, there's another in the fire. You know, that's right. You know, know, popular song right now. But um, as I'm, I'm reading that. The, the statement that came to me is God is in our fire. And uh, I remember just observing the room and just around like, you're here, God. I know mm-hmm. you're here. And what's interesting about it is God had always been there, but the fire made him more visible. Like God was never not there, but the but it was in the fire. He became more, more seeable, more, more clear to those, not just in the fire, but even outside the fire. And so I just remember in that moment, thinking like, this is the God who's with us. You know, Emmanuel is God with us. Christ is with us to the end of the age. And and the Bible makes this comment over and over, right? Isaiah 41.10, fear not, uh, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I'm your God. So every time you turn around, this presence, this reminder of presence is there. And yet when they're thrown into the fire, he is there. He is there. And so that, that statement, um, you know, God is in our fires, I wrote down. Uh, a fourth thing I wrote down uh, is we need others in the fire. The one thing that's really interesting about this story is there's never a time when they're mentioned alone. You never hear Meshach mentioned alone, Shadrach mentioned alone, Abednego mentioned alone. They're always together. And I don't love speculating on things the Bible doesn't make clear, but I think you could make a rational argument that it's likely they're less strong if they're standing alone facing that mm-hmm. that temptation. Yeah. You know, if they're standing in front of Nebuchadnezzar isolated you know, it's like, boy, it looks it looks easier to kind of bend the knee and cross the finger. Like, yeah, I don't really mean this, but right. as opposed to looking to your left and your right and you see your brother standing beside you, 
and you go, no, I'm going to stand firm. As they're in the fire, they're not alone. And um, and and for me, what what that what that told me, uh, and I wrote this down. My fourth point was we need others in the fire, and I knew that was going to be important for us because I think the easiest thing to do in the middle of struggle is to isolate. Yeah. When you're facing pain, uh, you run, you hide, you bunker, you hunker down, and you don't really let a lot of people in. And I think there's a lot of reasons why I think we're prideful. Um, I don't think we love to share our weaknesses. I think there's a Christian subculture of having mask up. That's why we answer like, hey, how you doing? It's like, we're good. While we may be on the brink of divorce. Yeah. Yeah. Where everything's good. And um, and so there's some things, you know, we talked about this on our podcast a couple episodes ago. It's it's why the divorce rate's the same in the church. It's why there's a lot of things that we don't even aware that's happening. But the reason we are not aware that they're happening is because we've been conditioned to wear a mask and not really dive into, hey, hey, I'm struggling here. Like we're we're struggling here. Yeah. And we need some people to come around us. Man, I, it's so true. I think like that you wear a mask so long, it even becomes true for yourself. It does. And you become blind to your own. Like the mask becomes real. That's right. For you. That's right. Quote, in air quotes, real. That's right. Yeah. So if we could, before we go to number five, yeah. if, if we could pause on that one for just a second, I'd, because there are going to be people that are listening to this, student ministry leaders all over the place that are suffering with something. It yeah. may be a family, a child issue, maybe a marriage like you mentioned. It could be, man, I'm just suffering in my role at the church right now, relationship with a pa- I mean whatever it is, yep. right? There's going to be suffering. Yep. And if there's not, they're going to walk through it at at some point. If not now, it's it's a matter of when. Yeah. yeah. So, what are some things that you did when you said, "Okay, we need others in the fire with us?" Yeah. Now I've got to go find these others. How did you do that? How did you find the other people that were willing to say, we want to walk through the fire? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously this is the importance of church and community in the church. So I, I think being a part of the bride of Christ and not just having your name on a membership role and not just occasionally attending, but I mean like, no, I'm invested here. I'm in group or Sunday school or whatever your environment context is. You've got to have some people who are close enough to your life that they can see your need without you always having to explicitly state your need to. Like yeah. if they're not that close, then they're probably not close enough. Even as a pastor on staff. You have to. Yeah. You have to. There has to be a level of honesty that we're willing to have with people rather than thinking we've got to perpetuate the stereotype that it's like, well, I'm in ministry, so I, I, I don't need help. We're, I'm the one that gives up. I, I know I'm good. Yeah. You know, I'm good. So I think it requires an intentional act of actually having conversations with people. You have to be willing to go say things to people that they may not be willing to ask you. So for me, uh, one of our elders is a guy that I can just go to with anything. I can go to and I can talk to him and I will. Now, he'll ask me, but I will purposefully make myself go to him and say, hey, man, help me with this. I'm struggling with this or I'm thinking through this. And uh, he's he's there to walk with me through that. One of the things we do with our staff is we've set up monthly soul care meetings with our staff. So I will sit, me and one of our elders, who's also a staff member, our executive pastor, we will sit down one-on-one with every staff member at least once a month, and it's soul care. How are you doing? How is your walk? This is not work-related. Nothing you say is going to affect your work. Like, this is purely how are you doing? Yeah. How's your walk with God? How's your marriage? How's your home? What things can we be praying for? Are there things that we need to know about that the church could come around and help you with? Like, we we want to foster that environment because I just I've seen it happen too many times when the fires come and they're coming. Like yeah. You just said it, they're coming. If you're in isolation, then you are prone to be picked off by Satan. Satan isolates and devours. Yeah, that's what he does. And so if we're in isolation when the fires come, that's when the enemy begins shooting those arrows. The the the, the strongest, the hardest, the fastest. They're they're, they're going to come crashing in if you're sitting in isolation. And the irony is is I wanted to make sure that we, as a family, were, were walking with a group of people and that we would be honest when they said, what do y'all need? How can we help? Instead of saying the typical church answer, which is like, oh, no, we're good, you know? Yeah. And then people are just like, okay, well, let us know if you need anything. And it's like, okay, we will, <laughs> but then you don't. And then you find yourself really struggling, whether it be spiritual. Like I went through a period of anxiety where I started having panic attacks because I was so, I had become so conditioned in trying to keep my posture as like, yep, we're going to be good, like for my wife, right. that I was having a hard time even getting a chance to grieve what was happening. 
my wife was taking her cues from my emotional responses. If I looked worried about something a doctor was saying, if I looked concerned about the fact that another transplant candidate fell through, it heightened hers. So it conditioned me. It's not her fault. This is me. It conditioned me, though, to just just put the face on. Yeah. Don't don't show how you feel. And what started happening, the more I pushed that stuff down and suppressed that stuff down, it started creating anxiety in me. I've never had that stuff in my life. And then it became something I was dealing with because I hadn't dealt with mm. with real emotions I was I was facing. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, like, so initially from the get-go, I kept our family in community and I was honest about what we needed. But what I didn't do is I didn't have that guy I've got in my life now where I could be like, dude, I'm scared. I couldn't say that to my wife. I couldn't say, I'm worried this is not going to end well. I mean, I just couldn't say that to her. Right. So I paid the price of not living out number four with having some individual people that I could have into into the inside of what I was facing. Yeah. Because I was facing some unique challenges as the husband and also, too, I think some built-in expectations of, well, you're also the pastor. So you got to have some right answers on this. And, of course, I'm going, man, I just got a notebook here <laughs> trying to figure out answers, you know? So – so, yeah, I would say it's important It's important to take the initiative and not wait for people to come to you. If I was going to tell a student pastor something, don't wait for people to come to you and ask. Go. It matters too much not to. You, it, you, it, you have to go find somebody that you trust that you can just be real with. Yeah. So what do you say to the student ministry leader that has um, spent a long time wearing the I've got it all together mask on and now has has the anxiety of, well, I've been telling everybody that I'm okay. Mm -hmm. So if I tell them now that I've not been okay this whole time, you know what? I'm scared of what they're going to think of me. I'm scared of, I'm scared of that perception. I think even in saying that, um, you're scared of their perception of you not saying something, right? So either way you either have to come out and be honest and say, Hey, you know, I've, I've tried to be, I've tried to do something Christ has never asked me to do, which is to pretend as if I, I don't need help. Uh, yeah. Jesus has never told us to do that. That's Jesus good. has never told us to act as if. So I think it's a, actually a humbling, godly thing that a leader could do is to actually model what it looks like to take the mask off in front of people. Yeah. yeah. You know, to say, oh, I'll I actually will let you carry yeah. That's right. this burden. For That's me. right. Now, on the flip side, I think. I don't think that that means a student pastor has to tell everybody everything that they face, right? So there's a wisdom also in realizing like, hey, you don't have to tell everybody every problem you have, yeah. but you better have somebody you can tell every problem you have. And so I think it's fair to take the mask off in front of the group and say, I haven't always lived up to this and I'm repenting. And what repentance means is I'm actually going to start sharing more deeply about even my own fears and my own doubts and my own worries and places where idolatry is creeping into my own heart and places where, you know, the enemy is, 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 is speaking louder to me than God's promises are. And saying that generically, but honestly, while at the same time going to somebody privately and saying, and here they are. Yeah. I think that is a healthy thing to do. And, that, and I think it's one of the things our church, we've always just done because, you know, this all happened way before I was a church planner. I wouldn't even... You know, I wasn't even thinking about pastoring a church. And and I think it's always marked our church's DNA. It's just kind of a, a raw. I mean, Nathan could speak to this, you know, maybe better as somebody who's been a part of it. But it's just a realness and authenticity. Just a we, we literally call it a pompous free realness. It's mm-hmm. just no pretending, no mask. This is who we are. And we're not we're not kind of just simmering in our brokenness like, yeah, you know, we're just broken. You know, it's like <laughs> the, the purpose of brokenness. Well, there is that out there, there too. Is. Yeah. No, there is. Yeah. And the purpose of acknowledging your brokenness is so you can seek wholeness. Hmm. Um, you know, we don't go to doctor's offices because we're well, but we also don't go to doctor's offices and like, yeah, man, we're all just sick. You know, it's just like <laughs> you go there to get better. You know, it's like right. you want to get whole. That's why you're there. So I think there's a difference between not saying anything and then just kind of living in this perpetual brokenness without wholeness thing. So mm-hmm. and I think community is huge to that more than anything. Like I wrote that point down that day, but in 15 plus years I'm really getting to understand just how deeply important it is. Like I knew it was important, 
but I realize how much more important it is now than I ever have. Yeah. Community yeah. is vital. Yeah. Well, let's keep. Uh, we've got number five. So the fifth thing was um, other people are, are watching and you're uh, watching your fires. Mm. If you remember the story, it says the satraps, the kings, the prefix, I mean, the, the prefix, the governors, right? All the people were there and they saw, they saw what was happening in the fire. Yeah. They saw that they were not burned and their clothes weren't singed. And it led to the confession of, you know, your Lord is God. And, and in that moment, I didn't even realize it, even the extent at that point. But I knew in that moment, I told Katrina this because I eventually went back with her with this list. And I said, hey, I really feel like God's given me something for us to hang on to. And that fifth one was God's going to use this fire we're in to show other people himself. God's going to use our fire to reveal people who he is. And we've always had that mentality. I mean, by the grace of God, it might be happening even right now. Yeah. Like God, use what we've been through and redeem it by letting other people stare into our fire and see you. Yeah. And that's what was happening in Daniel three. So that was that that was two months in, man. And that was, you know, those five lessons really became over the next, you know, over the next eleven years until he was thirteen years old. And still today, really, but that became the handles we held on to because for the next 11 years, relatively healthy compared to what the first two years were like, but still lots of struggles, hospitalizations, different complications because of medicines. When you compare them on a spectrum of a kid that's never sick except for a, you know, a cold and, you know, right. <laughs> you know, a, an occasional fever. He was very sick yeah. compared to that. Throw some essential oils that's on right. it. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, compared to that, he was very sick. Compared to what he was for two years where it was life and death, yeah. he, was, he was in a different situation. Kidney was fine. Kidney's been acting fine. Still good. But in the fall of 2017, after 11 years, um, he got sick again, and he got fungal meningitis. And we were back in the furnace again. Now, this is kind of where I started to hear and see the story unfold okay, yeah. because through social media and things yeah. like that, where you and I are connected, uh, the, is the kid is, are these connected things? Yes, they are. Okay. So because he's on drugs that suppress his immune system, right? It made him more susceptible to this meningitis. Okay. So he got fungal meningitis, probably inhaled some somewhere, somehow, um, there's different things you can get it from bird droppings and all kinds of things. Okay. And and whereas you, our bodies would inhale it and just fight it off and kill it, his body couldn't. Okay. His immune system can't. So he ends up getting sick. He is in the hospital for a couple of weeks before he then goes unconscious. And once he goes unconscious, they're running all kinds of battery of tests and they discover he's got fungal meningitis all over his brain. Um, he's had strokes. And at this point in time, we have no idea what's coming, what, what this means. He's unconscious for nearly three weeks at this point. I see Man. you. I mean, it's uh, we don't know. We don't know what's ahead. And again, you know, we've been we knew we knew that the fire might be something we return to. Like kidney transplants don't last forever. Yeah. I mean, it, we knew because he had, it wasn't just easy living for the last 11 years. So we knew like we, we weren't like naive, but this was a sledgehammer compared to like, we weren't ready for this. Yeah. We weren't ready for this. Cause you've made it to 13 years old. Yeah, He's a teenager now. Like yeah. this is ancient history that, yeah. two, that two month old stuff, you know? Yeah. He's playing on his junior high basketball team, you know, and he doesn't play much cause he was a little squirt, but you know, <laughs> but but, you know, he's out there, and if you wouldn't know any different, you wouldn't even know anything had happened to him. Yeah. None of that stuff was a part of his history if you just looked at him. Yeah. And now here he is um, with this stroke and meningitis. He ends up coming, you know, conscious, but he's lost his ability to talk. He's lost his ability to walk, his motor skills, all those things. And over the last two years now, it's been just a, a challenge of trying to recover some of that stuff. He's still uh, very minimal speech, very minimal speech. When he does talk, it's... It's slurred and it's it's just hard. The, I don't even you didn't realize, and this is the stuff we've learned because we're in the middle of it. Man, our talking is nothing but motor skills. Everything is mo your tongue, your lips, your everything is muscles that you're operating without even thinking. Yeah. And for him, all of it's work. 
to try to get any of it functioning. Mm-hmm. Um, he recovered some walking afterwards, but now he, he, he's not walking because he was dealing with chronic pain in his legs. They couldn't even trace where this pain was coming from. And so they had to do a surgery to disarm his pain receptors. Just it's been a wild two years. I mean, literally we're on, we're at the two year mark right now. Yeah. And, and for all we know, he may get slightly better. He could get way better or he could never get better than this. And what we've had to come to grips with, with our theology of suffering is still God can save us. Even if he doesn't, he's in our fire. We still need others to walk with us through this. And God still wants to use it to demonstrate and to show his glory. Yeah. Those five things from two months old have continued to serve us. And yet, the more I read the Bible and the, 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 the longer I've gone pastoring and, and just maturing, hopefully growing, the more I see even more full the reality of what God is doing in suffering, right? Because, you know, the, the old adage is, you know, if God is good and loves us and powerful, then why is there suffering? You know, and it's, this is a question from an apologetic standpoint people ask all the time. And, you know, one of the things I, I ask people who say that, it's like, well, if the alternative is, therefore, there is no God, the, the, the problem is, is if there is no God, there is no such thing as suffering or evil or, or anything like that either. If there is no God, then what happened to us just is. It's not bad. It isn't unfortunate. It's just is. It's, yeah. just, it's just what happened. You can't assign value to it because you're assuming that there was some inherent standard that should have been kept up with. Instead of, you know, this random universe of chance and, you know, just chaos in motion, you know, it's matter clashing on matter. It's unfortunate, I guess, but I don't really have a way to ground that if I'm an atheist. But if I'm a Christian, I can say, okay, there is a God. Suffering doesn't eliminate the reality of God. And not only that, but but how do we understand why God doesn't remove our suffering now? Why does God leave us in pain? Why does... If he's powerful, you know, why does he not remove it? If he loves us, why does he not remove it? And here's the answer I've come to I've come to understand it and believe with everything. God is all powerful and he could remove it like that. Our God can save us with yeah. a word. With a word, his speech could be back. I mean, Jesus literally did it in the Bible. Right? <laughs> right. With a word, his speech could be back. With a word, his legs could work. Jesus did that in the Bible. Yeah. But if he doesn't take us from it, then it's because he's doing something in it. Okay? If God does all things according to the counsel of his will, then he's not forgotten us. It's not random or accidental that our son is dealing with these things. God is doing something in these things. And so Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 comes to mind. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Well, that's a challenge right off the get-go. Trust yeah. and don't lean on your own ability to connect the dots about what he's doing. Trust. Trust the Lord and quit leaning on your ability to understand what he's doing. Instead, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Just keep looking to him. Keep following him. You know, even if he doesn't, he's ours and we're following after him. Keep acknowledging him. And here's the promise. He'll make your path straight. And and we cling to passages like Romans 8.18, right, where these present sufferings aren't worth compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. So mm-hmm. in Christ, our future is incredibly bright. And this is as bad as it'll ever be. This is as bad as it'll ever be for those in Christ. But there's a future that's been purchased by Jesus for us, and that's what we cling to. So we trust we trust him in the midst of the pain. We don't lean on our own understanding, and we know that future glory outweighs present sufferings. And so that's how we keep day by day driving forward. And people ask that, how you do this? Day by day. We try not to get over our skis too far looking at next week, next month, <laughs> next year. It's like today. Yeah. We're dealing with today for today's sake. Yeah. I was reading... Uh, I looked up, I looked at my phone just a second ago, and because I read this earlier today for something else, um, but it, it it just keeps coming to my mind as you talk, especially about like Jesus still being in it. It's First Peter five ten, uh, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself personally restore, establish, strengthen, and support you right. after you've suffered a little while, That's and. Right. As you were just talking, you linked this to eternity. And like after you suffered for a little while, for us, may mean a couple years, a couple weeks, a couple days, a couple decades. Right. Or the time that our suffering is over might be when we're face to face. That's it. With him in eternity. And Mm -hmm. we don't know that. But I think there's like God knows the day our suffering will end. That's right whether that's tomorrow or when we're with him. So literally the podcast episode Brett and I recorded today is on the question of what is hope. 
And hope is always a present virtue to present fruit of a future promise that you're confident in. And that future promise isn't, hey, an, another week or two, and Jesus is going to lift this off of you. Yeah. No, no, no. There's no time frame attached to how long your suffering is going to be here. It has everything to do with what's coming when he returns or you go to him. Uh, and we went through an article that was written. It's written about how POWs in Vietnam survived. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've heard of the Stockholm effect, but essentially those who made it were not the optimist. They were the pessimist. Now, what they mean by those terms is the optimist was the person who thought, you know, I'm sure we're going to be out here in a month. I'm sure by Christmas we'll be home. Yeah. And every time another Christmas rolled around, Just it crushed. crushed them. It literally <laughs> yeah. crushed them. Uh, Stockdale said um, many of them die with a broken heart mm. because they they their hope was in immediate relief. And the pessimist, he said, and, and the word's not a great word choice, but what they mean by the pessimist is, is the one who confronts the facts brutally, that this may be, this might be this way for a long time. But but they caveated it, but ultimately never lost hope in an ultimate victory. And and what I was telling Brett is like, I don't know how they could have a hope in an ultimate victory if they're not in Christ, but for the Christian, in any circumstance, that is what hope is. Yeah. It's hope in the ultimate victory. Um, when Jesus gives the warnings in the church um, in Revelation, you remember when he's talking with uh, the church there about the the suffering that's coming. He talks about how they're going to be imprisoned and uh, Satan. He said literally, he says Satan is going to come and um, is going to put some of you in prison. And he tells them, he says, "You're going to suffer, but he says to be tested. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life." So Jesus says, "Hey, listen, church. Uh, Satan's going to have some of you put in prison, and for ten days you're going to suffer uh, many trials." And this is to test your faith. And then you're expecting him to go, but don't worry, I got you. After 10 days, I'm going to make the suffering go away. Instead, he says, endure to the end so that you might receive the crown of life. In other words, his, his, his answer to them is, you're going to suffer and you're going to be imprisoned. And the origin of this is Satan. He's coming against you. He's going to attack. But just stand firm. Stand firm in the midst of your suffering because at the end, I'll give you the crown of life. Mm. That's your ultimate goal. That's your ultimate gain. So... When we talk in our home and we look at Caleb and we look at our girls who yeah. have had to watch their older brother go through this, our our teaching is constantly revolving around God is at work in Caleb's story, and one day Caleb's story is going to finish in running running you know the streets of gold, and we're going to rejoice together as a family, not in health. We'll rejoice that we're healthy, but we'll rejoice in the Christ who has given us this. Yeah. That's what it's about. And so, man, for, for those in Christ, this is as bad as it gets. Hmm. For those in Christ, this is as bad as it gets. For those not in Christ, this is as good as it gets. That's good. So the, on a practical level, for the person suffering, hopefully, um, looking to eternity, looking to um, what the Lord will one day do, keeping perspective right, how do you how do you coach somebody in having the balance between actually doing the work of suffering yeah right and not fast forwarding like we do when we put the mask on yeah yeah it's good. not fast forwarding to oh but god's good in it and and everybody's going to s- right. see his name praised and that's right because yeah i think I think believers all too often feel like they have to jump to that. Like a, you know, a good Christian would say, oh, no, 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 this isn't all that bad because God is there with me. And that's true. Yep. But we don't allow ourselves to see the Lord walking through us, walking with us through a real fire in which we're being molded. Yeah. We're being brought through. We're being ministered to. Yeah. So I, I don't think that's veering at all. So that's going back to that article. That's what the optimists were doing in that, in, in that article, right? So I think the optimist in terms of the Christian uh, taking a perspective like this is being naive and is actually, it's one of two things. We're either, we're either living in denial of what it is that we're going through and, and the pain of it. And we're trying to put on the Christian veneer of, no, everything's wonderful. It's awesome. And then there's a wishful thinking, which is like, hey, well, we've just given this to Jesus. It's going to be better. We're believing it, right? I mean, I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but it's like the, hey, we prayed and we believe this cancer has gone. And, you know, we're just, we're trusting that. And it's like, 
okay, well, maybe, but Jesus may actually have you in that cancer for a reason. Like he may mm-hmm. lift it, but he may keep you in it. And, and you can't just kind of, you can't just throw a neat, nice little facade over this. So I think one of the things we talk about on the podcast a lot is that to be a hopeful sufferer isn't to deny suffering. It's not to deny suffering. Lament is in scripture for a reason. Yeah. It's right to lament loss. It's right to grieve hurt. If you don't, you're being less than human. Jesus literally grieves at the funeral of Lazarus. He 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 weeps. Yeah. And and that's the last response you expect because he purposefully waits for Lazarus to die. Like go read the text. He purposefully yeah, waits. That's right. So that he can come raise Lazarus so that he can demonstrate as he talks about in John 5 when he says my voice will raise them from the tombs and though you know and so all of a sudden he says Lazarus come forth and Lazarus comes forth from the tomb so how do we know that the one who says uh, my voice will raise all from the tombs because he actually walked up to a tomb now and called guy, a guy out of it after 4 days so this is awe inspiring it's amazing but before he raises Lazarus what does he do he joins the people in their weeping and mourning and their grieving. He literally cries. He cries at a funeral that he knows he's about to raise the man from. He yeah. could have looked at them and said, hey, guys, 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 don't worry. Yeah. I, look, watch what I'm about to do. Yeah. Don't. Why are you crying for? It's because he knew that's the rightful response to death. The right response to, to suffering and affliction is to grieve it and to mourn it because the source of it is sin. And the reality of it is this is not the way things are supposed to be. So we are lamenting and grieving and mourning over a world broken by sin. And yet our hope comes from that's not the end of the story. Our hope is actually embedded in what awaits us, the the better land that is coming. So I think the practical thing is don't try to rush past your grief and your mourning and your sorrow in order to get to the hope. That's why we call it hopeful suffers. It's hope in the midst of real suffering, which is why there's grieving. There's, there's, you know, there's lament in the Psalms as much as there is praise and rejoicing in the Psalms. Yeah. Man, I think that's such a huge thing because your number five is that people, other people are watching your fire. That's right. And that that might be a way to help them see the fourth person in the fire. Right. That Christ is with you. But I think, especially for pastors, when we hear or sometimes even use the phrase, other people are watching you, Yeah, it's interpreted through, that means I've got to be perfect. Be on your gay game. That means they're watching me, so I I have to do this right. Have the right answer. And right right for us, I think, often means I can't be knocked down. I have to be undefeated. I have to be, you know, the armor can't be muddy. Yeah. And in reality, right for us means I should demonstrate truthfully what this situation deserves. Yes. If this is a moment of, of pain, then my rightful response should be to demonstrate what pain looks like. And be honest about it. Yeah. You know, rather yeah. than giving some superficial answer, because people sniff that stuff out and they're just like, mm-hmm. that's not real life. Yeah. You know, um, again, this is not to to talk about, you know, like how good we're doing it at our church. But I'll just be honest with you. There's times in my message where I'm going to shed tears talking about hurt and pain. And I'm going to talk from firsthand experience like, guys, I can't wait for the day. I can't wait for the day that I see my son running and talking and we're and we're doing things like that together in the new heavens and new earth. I can't wait for that day. And if I'm being really honest with you, it's hard to look at him on some days and think about all that has been taken from him that he knows has been taken from him. Yeah. And, and, and it hurts. Yeah. And I look at our people and I say, it hurts. And so there's no pretending like, yeah, one day we're going to be in heaven, y'all. And so we ain't worried about it. It's like, that's a lie. Yeah. Our hope of heavens while we're not in despair, right? yeah. but we're still hurting. Well, and what that brings to mind, too, is that we have a responsibility to help others suffer well. That's right. And so being able to, you know, everybody else is watching how we respond to the suffering of others just as much as everybody's watching the way that That's we right. suffer when we're in the middle of it. That's right. And so being 
being able to sit in what may be uncomfortable sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, and man, Nathan and I were sitting around a table not too long ago where this happened. Somebody shared something really deeply painful. And in that moment, you could, you could just tell that Temp the other two yeah. couples sitting at the table uh, just jumped right to, but you know how the Lord's going to use this. Right. And we real quickly just kind of, you know, put a hand on the shoulder and said, hey, but let's talk about this. How are you feeling about it? Right. You know, what, what's right. going on here? That's what, right. Um, weep with those ju- who weep, right? Mourn with those yeah. who mourn. Um, we, we have, as student leaders, I, here's what I would encourage. I mean, first off, uh, you're, you've got students who are going through things. Man, one of the things I've come across just with camp life I'm amazed at the number of things people are going through. It's, yeah. I mean, when I, I feel so sheltered, I feel so blessed that I, my life was, man, my life was cake. There's, there's a lot of students who are facing things from sexual abuse to physical abuse to single parent homes, one parent not in their life at all. You know, parents are divorcing. They've got health issues. They've got crippling anxiety and depression. I mean, you name it, it's in your student ministry. It's there. Yeah. And so one of the things as a student pastor to, to model doing is one, being willing to name it and be honest about like, hey, these things stink. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These things stink. And and the Lord is is with you in this. Like the Lord grieves with you. The Lord mourns with you. This is not the way things are to be. And but we need to model actually grieving and mourning with them. They don't need to hear platitudes from us of like uh, you know, just a you know, the Christian version of the you know, the fortune cookie. You know, yeah. it's like no, you know what? I want to walk with you through this. And and part of the way we help people open up to doing that is we're willing, as we said earlier, to be honest and open about where we're struggling and where we're praying. And God hasn't yet answered the way we want, but we're trusting him. We're relying on him. And we're we're saying we're leaning out on our, on our own understanding. I don't know why God is allowing this. I, I don't know what God's ultimate plan is, but you know what? I, I trust him. I'm learning to trust him even when I don't understand what he's doing. I think Spurgeon famously said, you got to learn to trust his heart when you can't trace his hand. Yeah. You know, and so it's, that's what it's about. And so I think modeling this is so important. And I think giving students permission to be honest about, you know, their pain and their struggle. And we got to show them how the gospel speaks to sustaining them and helping them. And yet part of the Christian life is actually responding according to the circumstances. When it's hard, we, we don't pretend it's easy. Yeah. When it's when it's morning, we don't try to that that's why to be honest with you, like we just had a guest on our podcast recently who wrote a book called Remember Death. And uh you want to talk about a powerful book. Um the name of the book is Remember Death, it's by Matt McCullough. And his whole thing is is we we have even changed funerals to being more of celebrations of life instead of actually being at a funeral grieving the reality of death. Yeah. That's that's how quick we want to just throw these things out to the side. And it's like, no, there are things worth mourning over. And Jesus mourned over them, and yet that's also why Jesus came to give us hope beyond them. Yeah. Well, Eric, thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, thanks for having me. On this podcast, and I want to encourage you that are listening, uh, check out his podcast, Hopeful Sufferers, um, especially if you're in a moment of suffering now and you're walking through something, uh, then that, that would be a great resource for you. Um, additionally, if you find yourself in a place and recognize that this is totally possible, that you're thinking, man, I don't know that I have a theology of suffering, then also a great resource yeah. for you to check out. This has been another episode of the LifeWay Student Ministry Podcast. We will see you next time.